0: Welcome to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU Community Radio, a program featuring folks in their 20s and 30s from across Maine. I'm your host, Pepin Middlehauser, and I use he-him pronouns. In this show, I hope to provide you with unique perspectives of life from the next generation working to create the future they hope to see. First up in this episode.
1: My name is Tegan White. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. In the background, that's Hadley. She's also she, her. And I work most of the year on an oyster farm as a farmhand. And uh, doing general farm maintenance and deliveries. Uh, shucking at catered events things like that Um, and then for a portion of the winter I am a dive tender for a commercial scallop diver. Um, I was born at home in Tunbridge, Vermont um, which is a town of, of 1,300 people if anyone recognizes the name it's usually because uh we are home to the Tunbridge World's Fair we actually just celebrated our 250th anniversary so you can congratulate us on that Um, but yeah so it's very rural small dairy town you know we had a we had an elementary school and I guess middle school and uh, I, so I graduated eighth grade from there. I was one of nine students. And then there just, there isn't enough of a kid population to support a high school. So we're what's called a sending town. So we get to choose which high school uh, of the surrounding area that we want to go to. So then I went to a high school called the Sharon Academy in Sharon, Vermont, where I graduated with 27 people, I believe. So Yeah. (laughs) And that was great. A lot of the small community aspect of that felt really fitting to me. And I think was a really important aspect of growing up for me. You know, I had divorced parents and went back and forth a lot. So I think that tight knit aspect really helped kind of alleviate some of that. My dad grew up in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And so for one weekend every year, we would go to Woods Hole for a family reunion. And so from that, I gleaned that I really liked the ocean. And in high school, I did a semester trip called Ocean Classroom because I figured I was such a homebody. If I didn't get out, then I was never going to do it. So it was Four months, starting in January, they flew all of us kids, I think it was like 32 kids, down to St. John's in the Caribbean, and we got on a 131-foot sailboat, and we sailed down the Windward Islands of the Caribbean to Trinidad, and then uh, went back north to Florida and followed the coast up. Um, and went as far north as Bar Harbor, Maine. And we were allowed to dock at College of the Atlantic um, and use their library for our final projects and walk around downtown. Um, And I didn't think anything of it at the time. (laughs) It was mainly focused on how I was gonna go back to Vermont and how crazy that was going to be after four months of living on the ocean. But then when it was time to apply to colleges, kind of that um, seed started to blossom a little bit. And I remembered that really cool college that was very small, it seemed like a tight knit community. Um, So I uh, went to COA after graduating high school um, and kind of specialized there in um, marine ecology and kind of fisheries and aquaculture and for my final project at college of the Atlantic, um, I applied to the state of Maine for two small aquaculture leases for the school to use. Um, and that project basically is what spurred me getting in touch with, um, Joanna Fogg, who's a co-owner of Bar Harbor Oyster Company. And yeah, that's where I ended up today. I think like a lot of, of, high schoolers, I really had no idea what I was interested in at the time. And my mom, she would tell me pretty much that her, one of her biggest regrets in life was that she didn't finish a college education. And that really, she felt like that really took away a lot of her, a lot of the tools in her tool belt for kind of attaining the life she wanted. And, you know, my dad, he didn't go to college, but he knew from a ridiculously early age that he loved woodworking. And so he apprenticed with a furniture builder and a a home builder and kind of worked his way up from there to where he is now as the owner of a building company. So his whole mindset on the thing was you don't have to go to college if you don't want to, but if you don't, you need to be doing some sort of other training program to get you to a better spot than where you are now. So you can't just take a gap year or whatever and go work at, you know, a cafe or anything that will pass time for you. You need to spend that time in a deliberate way. So, I didn't really have anything in mind training wise and it's so easy to just get funneled into college, honestly. My high school put a lot of pressure on it. They have impressive numbers for um, attriculation, like college atriculation. So, so then I started looking at colleges and, you know, they've got that calculator that they put you through, you know, or it's like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for Greek life? Are you looking for a city, you know, and all these things. And pretty much what I plugged in was that I was looking for a really small place, um, and a rural place. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I don't think a lot else. And honestly, COA, didn't come up in that calculator at all. It wasn't anywhere on the list generated for me. And I just, I didn't really feel particularly drawn to anything that was coming up. You know, I, I did apply to a couple of other things like Sterling College in Vermont um, and thought, Jesus, if I go there, I'm really going to have to be a farmer. <laughs> um, and I was prepared to apply to Marlboro College And thought, if I go there, I'm really going to have to be into like literature or something like that, and never want to go anywhere. (laughs) And uh, also thought about Farmington. And I think that was it. And I remember applying early decision to College of the Atlantic and thinking, like, I really felt good when I walked on campus there. I'm not really feeling it with all these other places. If I don't get in here, maybe I'll just take a gap year and try to figure out what the hell I'll do next. So I definitely did not have a lot of direction going into it at all.
0: What was it like for you transitioning from school to working?
1: Yeah. Um, well, honestly, after being in school for so long, it was amazing to just do hands-on stuff and nothing but. I, I think I, I really work well with that. And just also, you know, it's, it's one thing to interview fishermen and, you know, read about fishery regulation and then it's another thing to be out on the boat you know and learn completely different types of things like how to actually tie knots because I mean sure you learn how to tie knots when you're doing your work study out on the boat but unless you're doing them every day and you are made to feel like an idiot for the time that your knot doesn't work that's not really learning it you know, you have to use it every day, just like a language and then relearn it the next season after you haven't been tying them every day for a few months. So, you know, the the beginning is definitely brutal. It's like learning how to walk again, because um, there's just a lot of really basic things that you don't know yet. And I, I think maybe that's why I uh, have stayed so long in the same jobs every year. I don't think there are a lot of people that graduate college and stay, for example, as a farmhand for 5 years, which is what I've done. So, yeah, it's been fantastic. I really like learning. Well, for example, for scalping in particular, that is a lot of fun because every day is a little bit different. For those who don't know, the state scallop fishery is managed on a rotational basis. So, Every three, well, every year, uh, a new segment of the coast is open for fishing. And then the next year it closes and another zone opens. And, you know, the next year, another zone opens. And then after it's been three years, it goes back to the first one. So last year uh, was my third year scalloping. So I got to see my my uh, last section of, of new bottom. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's cool to to learn a place intimately, you know, not just on the surface, but below the surface. And I like that. <laughs> I, I love the guy that I fish with Eddie Monet, diver ed to those who <laughs> live in Maine, because he knows everybody. It's crazy. For two years in a row, we've found a toilet on our first week of fishing. And, uh, And that's great. And it get better too. The first year, it was just like a classic marine head that you'd find in any old sailboat. And then the next year was like this ornate toilet. It was great. But there's also, so there's also a lot of dynamics going on with that that are just, they're really fun to get to know. So uh, for, for those of you listening, a scallop that you think of is probably just the small circular piece of meat. And that's the abductor muscle of the scallop. Um, And that is one tiny fraction of what the animal actually looks like. You've got like the big plate-like shell. There's two of them. And then inside there's all these other organelle, basically. And part of the regulations for our fishery is that we're not allowed to bring those on shore. So we catch all of our scallops, you know, up to your limit, ideally. (laughs) And then you have to shell out at sea. So, And that's because the abductor muscle is the only part of the scallop that doesn't incorporate what it's feeding on. So it's a filter feeder and it it feeds on plankton that are influenced by the waters around it and scallops move. So it's totally uh, possible that the scallop that you just caught could have been in waters with red tide or some other form of like toxic plankton at some point. Um, And there's no way to control for that. So the U.S. basically says you're only allowed to have the abductor muscle, but people love scallop gonads. Oh my goodness. And would definitely, definitely pay for them if they could. And for oystering, I also have really come to love the people that I work with as well. Not just every day on the boat. That's definitely amazing. But also the other people that Operate out of Hadley Point in all their different capacities. There's a couple of uh, recreational people who go lobster fishing out of there. Uh, there's another uh, muscle aquaculture operation that works out of there too. Um, so it's you know it's it's fun to get to know that whole community. I will say though, it is hard on the body, and one thing that I have been struggling with is how long can I do this for, and how long do I want to do this for. And my feelings on that change by the week and by the day. (laughs) Yeah. um, One of the really great things about working with Diver Ed is he is like a diving saint. He's just, I mean, he gives so much. So he uh, helped me get diver certified, open water certified two years ago, something like that. And then adventure diver and uh, advanced diving certified and I'm really hoping to do like rescue diver uh, certification so that I could operate as like a safety diver for him he does he is hired out to do a lot of different type of commercial jobs that can range from like mooring work to recovery on like crashed planes and like installing tidal power turbines things like that um, I don't I really like diving and so Um, I have I've got my recreational scallop dive license I put my name into the lottery for a commercial one every year but I I really would like to try to figure out how I can do more with diving Um, I'm not totally sure what that would look like the one thing that I do know after years of of doing you know seasonal jobs in Bar Harbor is that I don't like customer service (laughs) and I don't like working in the tourism industry which eliminates like so many of the first things that come to mind when you're like, okay, what could I do instead? So I don't really know for, for a while before the pandemic, I was honestly, I was thinking about going back to school, but then the pandemic happened and kind of got thrown off of that. And yeah, I just, my trust in institutions dwindled a lot, like a lot, a lot. I started to have a lot of of doubt, just like, are any of these people really accomplishing anything? Just very nihilist, you know? Uh, And just kind of was starting to feel like everything is all just a front. Like the same way that people always make their lives look better and happier on social media, organizations do the same thing. They make themselves look so much better on social media and what is the tangible impact they're actually having on people's lives? And then in a more real way, I was like, Jesus, I haven't been in school for so long. My c- computer is from 2014 and I just really don't want to get a new one. I don't want to figure out like what kind of programming capacity it would need to have. And my like tool set for being a student is so flippin' rusty and I also felt like I really love MDI, like Mount Desert Island. I, I want to be able to stay living here. Would I have to give that up to go back to school? And would I be able to come back? It seems like it is so hard to get your foot in the door in terms of like the housing network. And if I left, could I get that back? I don't know. I also adopted a dog, <laughs> you know, all these things. And in a more real way, I'm very terrified of change. It often takes um, a force from outside of myself to make me accomplish it. Uh, <laughs> so I think probably ultimately that's that's what's at the base of all of it. So I think probably moving on to a new thing is in the works for me, but Jesus, is it hard to get there? <laughs> I think I often, well, I mean, I live on Mount Desert Island, and it's not like I am a Martha Stewart or anything. It's hard to grow older on this island and see who can easily establish themselves here and who can't. A lot of, of my friends have left, um, and I think that is true for everyone who lives here. And a there's so many different reasons for that. Um, One can be that it's hard to find a job that you are passionate about, that you're interested in, that can sustain you year-round here. I mean, which is a fear of mine, if I were to leave the two things that I've got going on. And it is so hard to afford housing. Um, It's so hard to find it before you can even afford it. The health care system here is not amazing. And I just, I think it is hard for, for families to stay. And it's hard for me to imagine being able to start a family here and feel like I could stay, but I don't want to go anywhere else. And I think a lot of other people don't want to go anywhere else. And I also, I get discouraged. I mean, we are all struggling against common things like housing you know, and affordable wages and healthcare and things like that. But I've, I'm increasingly feeling like we all get distracted with these flashy things. Who voted for Trump? Who didn't? Who's in favor of Black Lives Matter? The entrenchment that people are falling into is just, it's really discouraging to me because I think people are more dynamic than a yard sign. And I've seen People that I care about decide that they need to completely cut off and alienate other people because, you know, they think they don't share the same value system. And of course they don't. Like they're human beings. And I, I know that they feel like really heavy topics and like part of the core good versus bad system that ties society together, but I don't think we can actually work like that as a community. And so to just feel like everybody who's here, you know, who's like working class families holding on to be divided even farther apart from all this stuff, that just gets me down.
0: If you could go back in time, like five, 10 years and tell yourself something that you have learned and know now, what would that be?
1: I think I would tell myself, not to hold back on anything because of a preconceived idea of who you are. So, you know, uh, 10 years ago, that would have been just before starting college. So thinking about the whole, what is that whole next chapter gonna be? And um, I really thought of myself as this very forgetful, very spacey kind of asthmatic kid. (laughs) And I think that a lot of doubts from that really held me back on a lot of things. So like, for example, when I got to MDI, you know, and people would be like, Oh, we're going to go hike Cadillac or door mountain to look for snowy owls. You know, do you want to come? I would think I can't do that. Like, no way. I'll have to like stop every five minutes to breathe. And I just, you know, I'll be so tired. (laughs) I can't do that. And it turns out I can actually do that. And it's a lot of fun. (laughs) And I definitely am forgetful. You know, that's not based out of nothing. But there are workarounds for that. And that doesn't mean that you can't do cool things. And, you know, those are small examples, I suppose. But um, I think in a larger sense, yeah, you just, you have this notion of, I mean, cause you're, you're still a teenager and, and so, so much of your world is self-doubt and learning to push that aside and just kind of be in the now and do what you're doing. I think that really gets you through a lot of it. And of course, everyone's going to tell you that and you're going to be like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> but it's so hard being me. And that's true. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, I think just putting your head down and being in the moment and following the moment into what you're interested in really gets you through a lot.
0: That was Tegan White, an oyster farmer and scallop diver on Mount Desert Island. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this is the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. Next up is this month's featured artist, a harpist and musicologist, also from Mount Desert Island.
2: My name is Phoebe duran MacDonald, and I use she, hers, and I'm talking to you, Pepin, from the land of the Mi'kmaq in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I grew up in Bar Harbor. I'm a musician, and I have various degrees in music performance, but I'm currently studying musicology which I've sort of figured out the best way to describe it for people to understand what it is, is like, I'm learning how to teach music history, which my goal, I guess, is to teach history. I don't really want to be like a freelance musician. There's just a lot of that, especially in Maine, there's a lot of travel, which I have done a lot of in my life, but it just is a little bit much, especially with the number of harps that I have. (laughs) Um, I grew up in Bar Harbor, sort of outside of town. My parents owned a bakery and so I sort of grew up in that. And then now they have a bed and breakfast. And that's like, it's very seasonal, which I think everybody can understand. It's like chaos in the summer, all summer in Bar Harbor. And then you kind of chill out at the end of October and like make it through the winter and start again. (laughs) It was a great place to grow up despite the chaos. I was homeschooled. So I had a lot of time to do what I wanted to do, which mostly included music. So I started playing harp when I was ten, and sort of played all around the state, basically in Winter Harbor and Rockport and Portland, occasionally Bangor. Just kind of chaos a bit in the learning what I was going to do with it. I went to Boston once a week for the New England Conservatory prep school, and eventually, like, had been renting harps for sort of the whole time that I was playing. And when I was sixteen. I like bought an instrument and it was sort of a big, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then from there, auditioned to conservatories, went to Oberlin in Ohio for modern harp performance. At the end of that, I applied for a Fulbright to study historic harp in Switzerland. So then I was in Switzerland and um, got a master's in historic harp and early music. Got there fall of 2019 and then second semester was COVID. And then I was there for three years and sort of got one master's, applied to other schools, didn't get in, started a second master's there, <laughs> and then applied to schools again. And now I'm doing a master's in musicology in Canada. So haven't like lived full-time in Maine for a long time. So modern harp, to me, it was very stressful. My hands are sort of small, which doesn't... Like, a lot of harpists are very small, and that's fine, um, and we make it work, but I sort of couldn't play some of the things that I needed to play. Orchestra excerpts, you know. And I was always quite shy and played a little bit too quiet to like, I wouldn't get an orchestra job. And I didn't wanna be like a solo harpist. It's just too stressful. <laughs> so I was really loved theory and history and sort of at some point at Oberlin decided to minor in music history just cause I was taking so many classes. I was like, okay, well, why not add this little extra thing? And sort of slowly, every project that I was doing, every paper for every class, I was like turning it into a little bit of like a a feminist harpist historical approach. And that was like, my teachers went along with it for sure. And I was sort of writing all these papers and doing all these projects. And it was like, at some point, I was just like, okay, well, I'm not gonna get another modern harp degree. I'm not going to apply for orchestra programs or like, so I just decided to switch gears a little bit, and met a harpist, a historic harpist. My teacher at Oberlin didn't really know what to do with me, in a way. (laughs) and So at some point, a woman, Maria Cleary, is a historic harpist. She lives in Italy, and she came to Cleveland to do a concert. And so my teacher at Oberlin, Yolanda Condonasis, invited Maria to come give us sort of a masterclass. And it was like, oh yeah, talk to the whole studio. They're all very interested. And it was like, I was interested. <laughs> she sort of pitched it as like a, oh this is a great masterclass situation um and it really was kind of just me so anyway I was like slowly getting into it a little bit and then had this masterclass with Maria and had lessons with her and she said oh there's this program that I teach at in the summer like if you you know students in conservatory usually do summer programs of orchestra, or chamber music, or whatever it is. So I was super into it, but it was in the Czech Republic. And so I convinced my duet partner, Celeste, a soprano, to come with me. And we applied sort of as a duet to this program, and went and learned just so much about early music, and like three different kinds of historical harp, Baroque, Renaissance, like Baroque Italian and Spanish, Medieval. It was just so interesting. And we came back and it was my last year at Oberlin and I was like, all right, well, I'll like make it through the year on Modern Harp and this is what I want to do. So I somehow found a Baroque harp to rent from New York, like got it to Oberlin, sort of taught myself a bit, would sort of email with Maria and be like, so I think I'm doing this. And she'd be like, well, I don't know about that, but like, good luck. very encouraging, but just sort of odd to be, you know, in a completely different time zone and a different continent from the person who actually knows what they're doing. So that the first semester of my senior year at Oberlin, I was like, all right, well, I don't know how to study with her. And someone said, how about a Fulbright? And did the whole application process, wrote a ton, somehow managed to record some music on this carp didn't know what I was doing, um, submitted it all, and there was sort of like, for a Fulbright, if you're a musician and you apply to Italy, so Maria teaches in Italy and Switzerland, if you apply to Italy, you won't get it unless you're an opera singer, because it's so important for opera singers to go study in Italy, and that's fair enough. So I applied to Switzerland instead. So I went and I was doing the whole program and it was really wonderful. At Oberlin, I had taken a lot of gender, sexuality, feminist studies classes, And sort of was realizing, was looking at all this iconography of early harpists and reading all this stuff and realizing that harp is sort of one of the only instruments that we know of that women have been allowed to play professionally since the beginning of the instrument, basically. And it was like sort of rattling around in my head a little bit. And at some point I mentioned it to a couple of teachers in Switzerland. And the teachers are amazing. The school is great. Geneva is really cool. But europe just it's a little bit behind in the sexism department (laughs) And, and there were just kind of these conversations of like well sure women have played the harp but what does it matter that they were women and you know why would you just just play the music like you know you're good you're doing all this great stuff you don't like like research is really good But they sort of weren't quite understanding the like feminist aspect of it or why that could be considered like an interesting sort of feminist project. So it was a challenging time in Switzerland because it was COVID and I was sort of alone in my room for a long time with just the harps (laughs) and realized that I am just really invested in this idea of sort of why harp is considered like such a feminine instrument like what a weird thing. It's just an instrument. (laughs) And I would sort of like test these these research questions on people. I'd say, can you name any famous harpists? Just sort of like as a random question, i would say, oh yeah, King David, Orpheus, Harpo Marx, even sometimes they'd say Salzedo, who's like a famous modern harpist. Like, okay, okay. But if you could think of a feminine instrument than harp, what is it? And nobody could. And then I'd say, well, can you name any famous female harpists? And there was just dead silence every single time. So it's, I don't, I'm still like, is harp considered feminine? Yes, that's answered. Okay, fine. Why is it? And you can sort of say, oh, because it's, it's like got this graceful curve. This is what people used to say, this graceful curve. And you can see this, you know, when women play harp and their little ankles peep out when they're moving the pedals and. And all this stuff, and it's it's so quiet and so, like, a nice gentle sound. I feel like, I don't think that this is the reason. And then there's sort of this circular argument people make of, like, well, more women play the harp because it's always been played by women. So women like to play it because they see other women playing it, because it's a feminine instrument, because women play the harp. And it's just, like, the it's the dumbest thing. (laughs) So anyway, long story short, I sort of managed to present a question that I want to research and applied to schools for musicology just to see if I can kind of get to the bottom of it. And then my like grand plan or the hope anyway, is that I'll be able to teach music history to whoever it is, first year students in music schools, anyone and use the different women throughout history who've played the harp as sort of a jumping-off point. Like, okay, we'll talk about music and opera in the 1600s, and let's start with Lucrezia Urbana, who is this harpist, who was the harpist who premiered Monteverdi's Orfeo in 1609. She was maybe in 1607 performance, but we don't have any information about that. But we can track that she was like, employed at the Mantuan court where it was premiered. Or let's talk about troubadours and sort of the movement of early French language across France and through Italy. And we know that there were troubadours who played harp, and we know that there were trouvères and troubérets who are women who played harp and did the exact same thing and also traveled. And sort of how does that lead to our understanding of sort of politics and gendered politics and culture across Europe. And and how does that lead to us in the modern day as harpists, but also as musicologists, you know, if there's women that we can find throughout history in every time period, they weren't always composers. They weren't always keyboard players, but they were always harpists. So that's my, I'm, I'm still trying to like hone in on exactly what I'm trying to say, but I think that's, Where I'm at now, first semester, it's going well. I believe that my parents' decision to homeschool was based on my brother, my older brother being sort of rambunctious and just wouldn't, he just wouldn't have done well in school, I think. Um, He needed to be outside, (laughs) I think. And then he's seven years older than me. And so then they just kept going. (laughs) You know, a family business, they can make time for kids it's not they're not stuck in one place needing to find childcare and all this stuff between the four of us we've all tried probably most of the different homeschool curriculums out there it was just kind of we all had very different learning styles and you know my older brother's a scientist and I'm a musician and we don't have the same learning styles it was very like I'm always so impressed that my parents were able to sort of juggle like okay well this worked for him and she has no interest whatsoever. (laughs) Meanwhile, like my younger brother's playing soccer. And then my sister has a homeschool group and like all this stuff. And oh, Phoebe has to go to Boston again on Saturday. Great, like what are we gonna do? So it was very sort of eclectic which I think worked very well for everyone. Um, And also we were all homeschooled all the way through. So up until college, and my brother went to um, an engineering school, and I just have zero recollection of his application process. None whatsoever. Um, so there was a lot of, like, everybody having to do a lot of different things. You know, he was a rock climbing guide while I was, like, going and spending time with horses. <laughs> sort of. There's a lot of driving around. So yeah, that's sort of the... My impression, looking back at being a homeschooler, is just like logistics all the time and just thriving, <laughs> like learning what you wanted to learn when you wanted to learn it type of thing, which I guess is what they call unschooling. Um, but then going from that to college was, I think, not at all what I expected to do in my life. It was definitely like, OK, well, I'm going to play harp and then I'm going to like have a horse farm. like the ultimate goal homesteading have a lot of horses and then I started going to Boston for orchestra and for lessons on harp and I remember in my very first lesson I was 15 or 16 we went and it was like 95 degrees and horribly humid and sort of got into this harpist's apartment like this tiny apartment in Somerville she had tons of harps and sat there and had my lesson and it was like really interesting, um, sort of a test lesson. And then I sat there behind the harp and my mom said, all right, well, does she have what it takes? Because Boston is like a huge commitment, like six hour drive one way. And if we're going to get here in time for chamber music rehearsal, then we're going to have to leave it four in the morning. You know, is she going to make it? <laughs> like, can she get into a college? And the teacher was like, yeah, she can. And that's sort of it was like the feeling of being just horribly sticky and sweaty and sitting behind this harp and being like, oh, is this where they decide my life? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> sort of like, oh, all right, well, that's good. She thinks I've got what it takes. Let's go for it. And then, yeah, from there, it was kind of like if we're making the commitment to go to Boston and I'm loving everything that I'm doing with harp and like, my orchestra is going to tour in Iceland. And here's all these logistics. And then I'm on this radio show and have this big award and like all this stuff. You're like, oh, everything here is preparing me to do this next thing that musicians do, which is audition for conservatory. Like, I guess we'll do that. And it was just kind of like everything that I was doing was leading up to it, which meant that I really wanted it or else I wouldn't be making all this effort to go through (laughs) like audition process is grueling and you know you apply to a school the application deadline is December 1st then you go to the audition which is like a half hour slot on a random day in February and if the teacher likes you and thinks that you're gonna make it then they'll recommend you to the school and then the school will look at your application materials like it's not everything is sort of hinging on the 30 minutes that you spend with the teacher which is one way to do it, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> my first year at Oberlin, first year of my undergrad, was way easier than I thought it was going to be, having never done any type of schooling <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like I set myself up incredibly well by spending so much time and effort getting into college. So the fact that I had like done all of that And was there and really wanted to be there meant that I was like doing my homework and figuring out how to write papers, (laughs) like listening to the recordings that I was supposed to listen to and analyzing all these pieces and like doing my theory homework and all this stuff. And I wasn't already burnt out on being in school and I wasn't reveling in this newfound freedom that many other first years were. And I remember being incredibly irritated the first year by like people in my class would come to school on Monday, just totally unprepared, having like the, you know, 18 years old, having been at parties and drinking and, you know, making friends or whatever that they then didn't spend any time with the next four years. But the whole thing, Yeah, I was like, why are you, you're spending so much money and time and effort. Like you did the audition, you got into the school. Why aren't you focused on your classes? Like, how are you not seeing how interesting this material is and how important this is and all this stuff? And that was like the biggest impression looking back at my first year was just, I was like so into it and I was so annoyed that everybody else was being kind of stupid. (laughs) And the other homeschoolers that I knew were having the same experience as me. Everybody who had been homeschooled and was in this conservatory was like, wow, this theory teacher is great. This theory teacher maybe isn't as great. All of these extra classes that we're doing are super cool. And like, this is my focus. And I'm going to learn all my music for my jury. Like, it was just there was like the path that you were going to follow and you followed it. and then. If you were spending too much time doing other things, it just like didn't make sense to me. And that was my experience <laughs> being a homeschooler who went to college. <laughs> I sort of think of a couple things about like being a young person and what is important to me. And there were a couple things that happened in Switzerland that stand out in my memory, I guess. The early music department was sort of oddly a majority Mexican students. And at some point, one of them said, like, I met someone for the first time. And he said, oh, you're from the US. I can build a wall between our practice rooms if you want. And I was like, okay, cool. So this is our approach. <laughs> like, awesome. <laughs> and especially being from Maine, there's, I had sort of a limited experience with the sort of international community of young people. And then at some point in Switzerland my trio was myself, a Russian singer and a Mexican fiorbo player. And it was sort of like Trump was president and Putin was threatening Ukraine and we were like, and now we're all meeting in Geneva <laughs> playing music together. Cool cool cool. <laughs> so, I don't know like I think that as a young person and especially in Maine like it's incredibly important to be sort of informed about what's happening elsewhere in the world. And that's like, yes, it's in politics. Yes, it's in sort of international relations and all this stuff. But it's also like just young person to young person, I think has been my takeaway from the past few years of just like, you know, most world leaders are 50 years older than we are. (laughs) Like at some point they're gonna die off And we are the people who are going to have to fill that, whether it's, you know, playing music in an international uh, ensemble and sort of taking and showing and sharing all of our different approaches to music from wherever we're from, sort of playing for different audiences and traveling if we can, or if it's like actually running for a political office. (laughs) Like, I think, I like to think that those are, you know, the office is, is more important, but I tell myself that music is also very important because it's sort of a, a way that I, I'm unsure of the like music as a, what do they say? Music is the language of the world or whatever. You don't need to speak to play music. Fair enough, but also like, I don't know. I'm not sure about that saying. <laughs> I'm Never super convinced <laughs> of it because it has a lot of sort of colonial implications but I do think that music is like quite an easy way to share cultures and to care about other people. And especially if you're young and you're kind of into the same thing, like historic performance, early music, everything about it is improvised. So if there's three of us from three different countries and we're playing the music that's 300 years old from a composer from a fourth country, each of us is going to interpret that in a different way. And then as we play we're improvising and Alonzo will play something and I'll respond to that. And then Aurelia will sing something else and then we'll respond to what she's saying. And it's just like a very, there, <laughs> it's, there's sort of a lot to be learned about sharing um, and listening to each other in early music. And I think it's, it's almost a way of resistance or sort of can be, can be a political statement. And that's sort of like my struggle currently is, is what to do with that. I think it's important. And that's sort of what's important to me as a young person, thinking of like, what can I give to the world? How can I help in this sort of insane political situation that we've got going at the moment? (laughs) And like, is there something that can be helped with music? And if there's not, like, maybe there's not. And maybe the answer is there's nothing that can be helped with music. But that's like the skills that I have that I can bring to the world. I can also call people and tell them to vote, but I don't have a light, like a, I don't have a driver's license. I can't drive people to the polls and I don't have a political background. I can't run for office. So sort of everything about music is like what I can bring to the table. And I'm sort of, that's what I'm trying to to work on. And also like learning music from female composers in the past is like, okay, well, women and pregnant people are (laughs) in strife. at the moment with the overturning of Roe. And so can I sort of raise these voices and tell the stories of strong women in the past? And can that be sort of a form of resilience and how can that help people sort of either, you know, stay strong or just sort of have hope for like the resilience of women? I don't know if this is like a complete thought, but this is my current like justification for what I'm doing, I think. One of my sort of favorite pieces that I play um, on Burro Carp is A Chacona by Johann Heinrich Schmelzer, who was a 17th century composer. And I've played it in quite a few different scenarios, but it was sort of the first piece that was introduced to me within the, the like historic performance improvisation concept. And so it's quite a simple tune. It, like, seems very familiar, even if you've never heard it. And a Chacon is a Baroque dance style, so it's got a bass line that just is the same the whole way through, with sort of variations over top. So I learned the first sort of variation, the theme or whatever it is, um, the first part, uh, my first semester in Switzerland. And it's just very beautiful, very simple. And it sort of has just kept, kept coming back. <laughs> and I played it. I did this project in Italy uh, for the Fiera Cavalli, which was this giant horse festival. And we were sort of this, this baroque or early music ensemble um, and the whole thing is through sort of the helicona international school of improvisation and we did this choreography for this horse ballet based on these 17th century manuscripts that describe this horse ballet and how it was like at the medici court and sort of all this description and we sort of did the, our own choreography and then performed sort of three different carousels at this festival which was really lovely. And sort of, we were also like, <laughs> like doing this Baroque dance in the middle of this stadium with like harp, like I had a harp strapped to me, like a medieval harp. And you're we sort of doing this dance and then horses were sort of doing their own dance around us. And there were like 20,000 people in the audience. And it was just like, didn't quite strike me how odd it was until afterwards. Um, so we played that piece and it's very I was like, OK, I know what this piece is like and I know how to improvise on it. And it's like very sort of familiar and freeing. And then my final recital in Switzerland, I played it as my final piece and I knew that it, I wanted it to be my final piece. And I knew that I wanted to finish the concert sort of with I'd like played on three different harps music from three different time periods. And it was all solo. And I knew that I wanted my last piece to be with my duet partner Alonzo who plays theorbo. and theorbo is like it's a Baroque lute with sort of this four foot extension for bass notes it's wacky looking and Alonzo's from Mexico we've done this whole thing he was also in Italy at the horse project we've played a lot of music together like if sort of he's he's still in school if I go home after this it's going to be a while until we play again together and then I found out that the day of my final recital, it was the day that Presidents Biden and Putin were going to meet and have their summit in Geneva. So they were meeting at this place that was three blocks from the church I was playing my recital at, and I sort of got this idea into my head, and I didn't tell my teacher. And I, I was like Alonso, here's the deal: we're going to make this a little bit political. People probably won't even really notice. If they do, that's fine. I might get marked down on this piece. Doesn't really, like, I don't really care. Got to the dress rehearsal and played it. And my teacher was like, oh, okay. Why are you doing this? And I was like, well, Biden and Putin are having their summit. And like, I came to Switzerland on a Fulbright, which is paid for by the US government. And I like, I just needed to make a political statement. She was like, okay, cool. So (laughs) we played this piece, and started the whole thing, this beautiful chacona, repeating bass line, going along, I'm doing improvisation and all these variations, Alonzo's taking a couple variations for himself, totally jamming, get to the middle of it, and just quietly switch to Amazing Grace. Played Amazing Grace a couple times through, improvised back out of it, kept going, finished the piece and played the last note, sort of waited for the strings to stop vibrating. Alonso's strings were still vibrating also, like our lowest Gs were just kind of just waiting there. And then there was like this thunderous roar as the presidential motorcade passed to the church. Played the last note of the concert and there goes Biden. And I got full marks on my recital. Nobody really noticed. And it was just like, <laughs> just kind of <laughs> a classic way to end this whole crazy weird time in Switzerland. And that's my version of the Schmelzer Chikona.
0: If there was something, if there was some way to go back in time and tell yourself five years ago, 10 years ago, however, whatever period of time ago, Tell yourself something that you now know, that you've now learned, that you've now figured out in some way that might have helped you back then. What might it be?
2: Well, (laughs) probably the biggest thing, which is sort of this extra part of my life that I haven't talked about yet, is type 1 diabetes. And so I was diagnosed when I was 10, and the technology at the time was syringes. So I was pricking my fingers. 12 times a day, my parents were giving me shots with syringes, you know, eight to 12 times a day. And sort of the lie that doctors tell diabetics when they're first diagnosed is, oh, there's a cure in five years. Everybody knows this is not true. <laughs> At this point, it's possible that it is true, to be fair. Let's not, let's not give up on that. But I think I would have said to myself, the technology is coming. And you're like, you're gonna be able to travel. You're gonna be able to, you know, give insulin yourself. You're not gonna have to prick your fingers that much. Insurance might get better. (laughs) God bless main care. (laughs) That's what I will say. Um, But I think that's the, that's what I would say. Just wait it out. Technology is gonna help you. You'll be able to like mostly live a normal life
0: that held you back a huge amount through that whole process. Oh
2: yeah. Huge amount. There was, I mean, I was a very shy kid. So that, that was good. (laughs) It was helpful in a way, but there was lots of like, it like just being really worried about like, oh, I can't like all my friends are going on this hike or they're all going rock climbing or they're taking this road trip or they're going camping. And there's a lot of like, okay, so how much extra insulin do you have to pack? Do you have that like, Will there be a refrigerator? Do people know what to do with this like sketchy long syringed glucagon thing if you pass out? Like who around you is going to know? And also just like it's an autoimmune disease. So like there's a lot of there's a lot of stigma where people believe that diabetes means one thing and it's just not true. So there's a lot of like sort of explaining yourself and like, oh, but you you can't be diabetic. You're young, you can't be a diabetic, you're not fat, or like all this bullshit that's like, oh, well, you know, I wasn't sure about inviting you because I don't have a sugar-free cake to this party and be like, dude, no. <laughs> I can eat whatever I want. I don't make insulin, but I have these syringes. Like <laughs> my God. Pull it together. And the like stress and everything affects blood sugar. So there's a lot of just random. The other day, like yeah, okay, fair enough. The technology does exist. I do have this continuous glucose monitor. I do have this like crazy high tech pump. It's like Darth Vader's life suit. There was it did fail the other day, and I slept in half hour increments and was eating gummy bears every twenty minutes through the night. Like <laughs> it's a little bit weird sometimes, <laughs> but it yeah. There's also like the <laughs> the thing that I was that i was saying is the technology is going to be there but also i think i would tell myself you're doing the right thing by not hiding it there's a lot of people who do hide it or a lot of people who like put their pump in their pockets and sort of make sure that you can't see their tubing or like go to the bathroom to get insulin i didn't do that i feel like it wasn't i was like i'm already kind of the weird one i play harp i'm homeschooled i'm from maine Like (laughs) everything about my life is not what people (laughs) expect from like a harpist in conservatory. But they're like, if I know I'm going to see kids, I put my sensor lower on my arms that they can see it. And they wear a short sleeve shirt so that there's like, Oh, look, somebody else (laughs) has diabetes. Amazing. Like I think that that can, it can mean a lot to people. So yeah, it's, it's been very difficult and very like, holds me back a bit but also don't hide it and the technology's gonna work for you
0: <laughs> that was phoebe durant mcdonnell a harpist and musicologist from bar harbor the recording you heard of schmelzer's Jacon is up on youtube if you'd like to hear the full piece You can see Phoebe playing a Baroque triple-strung harp and Alonzo Esteban Cardenas-Munoz on the Theorbo. My name is Pepin Middlehauser and this has been the Next Wave Radio Hour. I want to give a huge thank you to my guests, Tegan White and Phoebe Durand-McDonnell. Thank you to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Our theme music is by Zeke Sakharidis. You can find the archive of the show at weru.org and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email nextwaveradio at weru.org. Next Wave Radio Hour airs on the fourth Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Until next time, stay safe out there.